Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. Well, Merry Christmas. Isn't it fun to say that? It's like here. Uh, I hope that you're able to join us Christmas Eve for a beautiful service with family and friends and bring them all. It's a great way to start off the celebration of the holidays uh, with us. And uh, this this uh, month we've been in a series that's been kind of fun called Socks and Underwear. It's kind of around the idea of the gifts we get and, and titled after the gifts we get, but we don't necessarily want, you know, those things that you get at Christmas that aren't really on your wish list. And each week we've been doing something we normally don't do, and it's not going to continue. So if this is uncomfortable to you, uh, it'll it'll go away soon here in this. But we've just been asking a question around the theme of gifts and having you all interact for 45 seconds. So our theme today is the best gift ever. So what's one of the best gifts you've ever received? Turn to the neighbors around you. Make sure no one's left out. So look around you right now and try to make sure no one's left out. And uh, just share some of your best gift ever uh, stories for 45 seconds. Go for it. All right. Man, you guys are animated doing that. That's fun. Uh, especially at uh, Christmas, I know, I mean, some of us probably give the Sunday school answer, Jesus, Jesus is the best gift ever. And that's actually what we're going to talk about. We're going to explore how he is the best gift ever. But uh, Wendy Albert, who my Wendy uh, highlighted, it's really funny because they work together a lot. And I, I'm always struggling because I want to say Wendy A, but they're both Wendy A. So I end up saying Wendy A and my Wendy. And anyway, Wendy Albert sent me a story, uh, an email story for, uh, about the best gift ever for her. She said, until I was nine years old, my family lived in a small northeast Ohio town. Our babysitter lived on the edge of town and had a horse. She would ride her horse through the streets and alleys of town, sometimes coming to our house and giving me a ride. So my dream was to have a horse like hers, although I didn't put it on my Christmas list because I knew you couldn't have a horse in town and it was too expensive to have a horse. But my dad knew that I wanted a horse for Christmas. So when I was nine years old, my parents bought a farm, we moved to the country, and I got my horse the same horse that came to my house to give me a ride. Isn't that amazing? She says more. She says, it's years before I knew what a sacrifice that was for my parents to buy a farm where three daughters could grow up. And it's a precious reminder to me of our Heavenly Father and what it cost Him to send Jesus to us. And on Facebook, I asked the question this week too, and we had a few others uh, share as well. Uh, Dusty Wallace gets the award for the, the best husband response. So you'll get that in a second. It says, when Melinda and I were first dating and shared our first Christmas together, she got me a really great gift. Knowing that we're both musicians, that I'm a collector, she bought me one of those retro stereos that look antique and play vinyl. We just call them records. I don't know why everybody has to say vinyl. It's just more cool to say vinyl. CDs, and it had an aux player and even plays cassette tapes. However, she didn't stop there. She also made sure I had new vinyl, and she somehow found cassettes for me to use on it. You act like that's a really long time ago, Dustin. (laughs) The gift was awesome. We had only dated a few months, and she was finishing school. She was a student teaching that semester and was waiting tables for her spending money. The time, thought, and care in light of where we were in life made the gift all the more special. This year, we celebrate seventh Christmas together, and our first as parents. Her gift was great, but she's the best gift. Ah, uh, good job, Dusty. Good job. 
Here's Vanita's story. She says, my husband and kids bugged me for years to get a dog, but I didn't want the added responsibility. When my kids were young, being a working mother, it just seemed like getting a dog was going to be a burden on me. Finally, was it in the end? Oh, no. Finally, with Christmas approaching, I told my husband we could get the dog and surprise the kids for Christmas. Now our toy schnauzer, Mia, is like another member of the family. We all love her so much. And then Jeremy Toma wrote this on Facebook. He says, as a firefighter, our work schedules are very different from any other job. We work 24 hours on and usually get 48 hours off before going back to work. We miss many important dates with our families, birthdays, anniversaries, sometimes Christmas mornings with our kids. Can we just pause for a second and just say thanks to all the firefighters, the, the nurses and the policemen who make those sacrifices? He says, five years ago I was on duty at Christmas Eve. I normally wouldn't get off work until 8 a.m. the next morning. I had arranged another firefighter to come in at 6 a.m. on Christmas morning so I could get home in time to see what Santa had left the boys. Around 6 p.m. on Christmas Eve, that firefighter I had arranged to come in early the next morning walked into the firehouse. I was actually very surprised to see him. He told me that he was already celebrated his Christmas with his family and that I was to leave and spend the rest of the evening with mine. He reminded me that our children are only little ones and all he requested in return was that one day when my boys were older, I pay it forward and do the same for someone else with small children. Sometimes during the holidays, we don't get what we want, but we get what we need. The gift I was given that night was time, precious time. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? Over the years, we've all had our ideas of the best gifts ever, right? We've all had the things we wanted more. So for, for the fun of it, just for a moment, I, I just compiled some of the best gifts over the last 60 years. And uh, so make noise if you wanted this, and make even more noise if you actually got this, whether it came in that year or later. So 2010, the, uh, the Xbox Connect was the biggest gift on the market that year. Any, anybody? No? I had nobody on that one. The f- Seriously? Seriously? 2006 was the Wii. Yeah? Okay, okay. So we got some. How many of you were like me that had to get up at 2 a.m. in the morning, go stand in the cold and the rain with hundreds of people to try to get the lottery so you could buy it at the retail retail store instead of spending twice as much on eBay to get it on the resale market? Anybody else like that? I'm the only crazy one who spent at 2 a.m. Okay. We got it. My kids like me for that year. 1995, PlayStation was the thing. Kind of a theme here, right? Yeah. 1986, the big gift was Pictionary. Now that was my animated, high-definition, standard-definition experience of graphics growing up, except that mine was much lower than standard-definition because I flunked art. 1982 was the Rubik's Cube. Anybody here? Yeah, yeah. Can I ask you a question? Why do we call something so frustrating a game? It just makes no sense. 1973, this is one I got. I loved it. It was the Evil Knievel stunt cycle. It was like the coolest thing. Yeah, you got it? Yeah. Isn't that awesome? 1968 was Battling Tops. Anybody get that one? I got it a couple years later when we had a, a foreign exchange student and, uh, and a, a one from Africa and one from Asia staying with us over the holidays to get an experience of an American Christmas. And they were graduate students and they were really competitive. We stayed up till 2.30 in the morning playing battling tops and they just didn't want to stop because they got frustrated getting beat by little kids. 1965, this is actually, I saw this in Target making a comeback, Rock'em Sock'em Robots. Anybody remember that one? 1963, the ladies won the day. It was the Easy Bake Oven. Yeah. 1952, 
Mr. Potato Head. Now, uh, one of the things I did for Christmas for our family, we had a whole bunch of 8mm tapes from years ago that we had never gotten so we could look at them. And so I had them all digitized. And we were laughing and looking at those videotapes this last week. And one of them was Derek and his three-year-old party getting Mr. Potato Head. It's like one of the most enduring kids gifts ever. Now, I have to admit, I wish you could be up here watching you through all that. You're really a fun group of people to watch. You did such great expressions. Oh, we're seeing all these pictures. The interesting thing is that, uh, that many of those gifts have not endured. They long ago went to the trash heap in our, in our lives. I mean, Battling Tops doesn't hold a candle to Star Wars Battlefront or uh, COD Black Ops 3 on the game systems today, right? And the Easy Bake Oven, while well, we got, you know, microwaves and bread machines, we got all sorts of stuff today. They were all great gifts in their day. Now, the pastor who we kind of borrowed the, some of the creative idea for getting this series together, he's, he actually sets a criteria for what the best gift ever is. And I thought it was really interesting. He says, the best gifts to us are usually gifts into which time and thought went. And they tend to strike a personal note with us. And they enhance the relationship between the giver and the recipient. Because there's, there's story. There's, there's meaning. There's reminders that we get out of, of love and commitment. Maybe it's a piece of jewelry or like a wedding ring that reminds us of the love and commitment on a regular basis. And sometimes it's just the shared aspect of an inside joke. And you're sitting in a room with 20 other relatives. And you and the gift giver are laughing hysterically. And everybody else is going, yeah, nice. But you guys are weird, right? And that happens, right? But the best gifts are also gifts that require great sacrifice, aren't they? Maybe something extravagant or expensive, or maybe it's a handmade gift by your child that put a lot of effort into it. I remember one really, one of the most precious gifts I ever received was from a friend. Didn't have much of the time. And he gave me his hand-carved precious chess set that he got on, an, on a really special overseas trip that had his name engraved in it. And, and, and he said to me, he said, because I want you every time you play this to see my name and know that there's somebody in the world who appreciates the impact you've made in their life and has always got your back. That, that's... Okay, let's move on. So... <laughs> You know, I see his name and I remember that every time. Most often, the best gifts also have a powerful name, don't they? I mean, that's the reason G.I. Joe sells and G.I. Ralph not so much, right? I mean, it just doesn't work the same. Rubik's Cube sells, but Bob's Color Box contraption, it just doesn't work the same. Xbox sounds manly and sells, and Y Box just kind of sounds whiny, right? It just doesn't work. Now, it would be easy for us to finish this message and say how Jesus does indeed fulfill every one of these categories of a best gift ever, because he does. God thought it out well in advance and in the perfect time who fulfilled hundreds of prophecies. And Jesus came in such a personal way as a baby, approachable, touchable. And he came for the sole purpose that he would have better relationship with us. And there's great sacrifice. Jesus gave up his rights as God to live his life limited to the ability of a human and die on a cross. And Jesus certainly has a powerful name. His name means the one who saves. They're all powerful truths that we all talk about regularly at Christmas and Easter every year. But I want to I look at a little bit different perspective this year as to why Jesus is, I think, the most amazing gift. And to get there, allow me to highlight a, a pressing problem that I think fights against the idea that Jesus is this beautiful gift, the greatest gift. And it's a problem that we all face, whether it's, with, whether it's in our friendships in a pluralistic society with lots of opinions or, or whether, it's, or whether we, it's more personal and we struggle with this question in regard to our own faith or faith in general. 
See, in a world driven by hatred, by violence, by political dispute, by economic class warfare, by harsh sound bites, by struggles over sexuality and sexual identity and morality, we all, when we're faced with people at work or when we're, when we're faced with a family who disagrees or, or friends who live contrary to the way that's comfortable to us, we all want to believe that we can resolve that tension. We want to believe that we can reach out to everyone around us and be inclusive and say everything is going to be okay. We don't like, in general, to tell people they're wrong. We don't like that kind of tension in our lives. And when tension persists like that, we either tend to either blast it and alienate people or we avoid it or we want somehow to make it okay by letting them live and letting us live, kind of this live and let live. But when we look at the story of Christmas and we're reminded of what that teaches us, it doesn't fit that approach to life. While Jesus is extremely personal, is approachable, is powerful, and is eagerly pursuing a really good relationship with each and every one of us, the Christmas story and the teaching of Jesus also makes very exclusive claims. Let's look at the main text, and we're going to look at some other texts in John. We've been looking at John for the Christmas story this year, and John 1 reads this way. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skipping to verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the little world was made through him. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And verse 18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father he has made him known. And later, Jesus, in responding to Thomas's doubt in John 14, later in that same book, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that exclusiveness makes us feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? I mean, much of culture responds to that exclusiveness by trying to solve the problem using metaphor, many different metaphors, but one of them is a metaphor of a mountain, and it goes like this. It says, imagine there's a mountain which represents life and reality, and, and the top of it is where everybody wants to be. And, that, and just the belief is that all paths lead to the peak, and so it doesn't really matter what path you're on. You just have to be the best person you can be, and the path will lead you there. I was listening to Michael Marsden uh, on, a, on, a, on YouTube this last week, and he was responding to this metaphor, that, which is used to challenge the idea that Jesus is the only way to God and salvation. And he asked the, asked the questioner, he said, when was the last time you climbed a mountain? And he, he looked like a mountain climber, and he actually was. So he said, well, last month. 
And so he said to them, he said to this climber, when you were at the summit of the mountain and looking down, could you see all the paths and could you see that all the paths led to the summit? And the questioner's answer, of course, was certainly I couldn't. I I would have had to have been way up in the heavens above the mountain to see that. To which Marsden replied, he says, well, then I'm just wondering. Which of us here who believes all the paths lead lead to the peak is trying to put ourselves in the role of God in the heavens to even make that statement? And I can tell you just from having vacationed uh, lots in the mountains and having lived in the mountains for 11 years, I can tell you that not all paths do lead to the peak. One of my favorite uh, experiences as a child growing up was we were, we were camping and we weren't in a camp spot. We were just in this valley between these 10, 10 to 12,000 foot peaks in a river valley. And my dad woke us up one morning and took us outside and he said, kids, boys, which mountain do you want to climb? And there were like, you know, half a dozen on either side of us. And we just pointed at one and said, Dad, that's the one we want to climb. It was just, it was a new question. I mean, we had, we had all of our life hiked tons. But we'd always hiked on trails. This was completely new to say, we're just going to conquer it today. And uh, it was a new and exciting thing. Well, I can tell you that not all paths lead to the top. I mean, we started down many paths and we ran into impassable cliffs. We ran into impassable slide fields that were too dangerous to cross. I mean, eventually we found a path to the top just in time for the lightning storm, and then we had to get off. But not all paths lead there. They don't all lead there. Now, there's an obvious problem with that idea and that statement in and of itself. I mean, when we say all or many paths lead to God and try to make that statement of inclusivity... Uh, we are actually not being inclusive at all. I mean, because if we say all paths or many paths lead to the top, then people who believe one way, uh, that still creates the tension because we exclude them from that belief. And if we say all, it excludes the many because there's a lot of people who say, well, not all, but many because certainly Hitler's path didn't lead to heaven and didn't lead to the right place. So it can't be all, it has to be many. So people who say all exclude many and people who say many exclude all. And you can't win in relieving the relational tension that you're trying to alleviate in making those arguments because all positions are exclusive. But the main problem in making that kind of a statement is we just don't understand Jesus and we don't understand religions. You see, everyone is looking for something, regardless of whether they're religious or even if they're atheists, they are pursuing something in life. And let's just call that something fullness of life. I mean, people use all sorts of terms for this idea of achieving fullness of life. We sometimes talk about it as being personally and spiritually alive or fulfilled or connected, or Buddhists would use the term nirvana, or some would say it's uh, achieving a state of enlightenment or living in a centered place, or, or some would say living a life of love, joy, and peace, and others would say it's living completely empowered and by the Holy Spirit, or and some others would talk about this fullness of life as me being successful and happy or having an abundant life or, or being a whole person or knowing God or knowing and knowing who you are and knowing your destiny. See, we talk about this idea in a lot of different ways. Whatever the term you use to describe that ideal life or that religious place you want to be in that experience All religious and life systems in the world operate generally trying to achieve that in one of three ways or a combination of them, except for Christianity. The first way is actually they try to achieve that through thinking. 
If you want, what they would say, if you want fullness of life, you need to master the ideas. You need to educate yourself to make yourself better. And then you need to learn to master, control, and implement those ideas in life in order to achieve this living of fullness of life. We're just going to talk about fullness of life most of the time to make it simple here. Now, certainly the Bible and and Jesus uh, talk a lot about thinking and how important it is for us to change our thinking, how important it is for us to learn to be wise. But Christianity can't be contained in this approach alone. And we easily see its limits, don't we, in this approach? I mean, one doesn't have to look very far in scientific studies to realize that the greater education you have does not correlate with greater personal happiness in life. And history bluntly confronts us on this one as well. You don't have to look very far to note that some of the most educated nations in the history of mankind have, have, have wrought some of the greatest evil. Germany under Hitler was considered the best educated nation in the world at the time. Back in the 800 to 1300, the Muslim caliphates that, that uh, militarily took over the cradle of Christianity all throughout the Middle East and northern, and northern Africa and spreading into Europe were some of the most scientifically advanced educated empire on the world, in the world at that time. And yet their religious persecution and military conquest was actually one of the major causes of the Crusades in the first place. There's other religious systems that focus on feeling or experiences. And so they would approach it saying, we need to have this mystical encounter. We need to have this experience of spiritual reality. And it's usually either through some sort of external activity or often, more often than not, inward-looking reflection and meditation to gain this sense of connection with the divine or the sense of harmony or fulfillment or meaning or centeredness. And, and there's lots of different Christian and non-Christian ways to meditate, and, and those are all part of it. And certainly, Christianity teaches us to meditate, to be sensitive to the presence of God, the Holy Spirit in our lives. But pursuit of feeling and experience as the way to define fullness of life can also just as easily lead to extreme sports addictions and looking for the next big thrill, that bigger feeling, because we always need something more and something bigger as well. Other religious systems try to achieve this fullness of life through doing, which that just means just just do these moral behaviors and practices. Put these principles into practice. And if you do, then you will experience fullness of life. Now, the fact of the matter is, every single person in this room probably prefers one of these approaches to the way you practice your faith more so than others. And, if, and that's part of what makes uh, you connect more with certain preachers and not connect with others. Some of you want somebody who's much more emotive and, and excited, exciting in their, in, their, in their speaking. Some of you want somebody who's more intellectual. And some of you just want somebody who's just simple. Just tell me three things to make life better this week. Just make it really simple. And there's a certain amount of that that is very good. It's expressing God's creativity and, and the person's uniqueness in that like, in those likes and how we want to approach our faith. However, Christian faith can't be reduced into one or even a combination of thinking, feeling, experiencing, or doing. See, there are religions that focus primarily on one, and there are some that try to integrate them all. But Jesus didn't come just 
to ask us to accept certain beliefs and certain ideas, even though how we think and believe is critical and talked about a lot in the Bible. He didn't just come to help us experience certain feelings and have certain experiences, even though the Bible talks about experiences with God as so important to reorienting our ability to experience love and peace and, and joy and contentment and those themes that the Bible talks about so much. He doesn't just come to tell us to do things, to be more generous and to do acts of mercy and kindness as important as those teachings are in the Bible to how we live our faith. Jesus wants all of these things for us, but they do not define what makes Christianity and Jesus the best gift ever. You see, Jesus came into the world as God. He claimed to reveal the one and only God in his very nature. It says it in our core text, the word Jesus revealed became flesh. Now, it's true, isn't it, that thoughts, words can reveal things about the one speaking? I mean, my words, speaking up here on a regular basis, reveal something about me to you. And sometimes you probably find stuff out about me you just wish you didn't know, right? But they reveal stuff to you about me. And reading God's Word, the Bible also reveals His thoughts to us. And it's important for us to have that. And Jesus becoming flesh created an experience of God for humanity. And we get to share in that experience vicariously through the stories of when he lived in the flesh. But more than that, Jesus himself says later in the same book of John, he says, it's better that I go away because then I'll send the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God, for you to experience and encounter, to lead you. And it's just this amazing, dynamic breakthrough of knowing God that all of us can have. In fact, some of you may be feeling him and experiencing him today during worship or, or even during this time because he's here with us. He's always here with us. And Jesus' example of doing justice and mercy, of being sacrificially generous across the board and how he lived, reveals who God is and who we are. And it actually shows us a really important truth that this fullness of life can't be found unless we do, unless we obey sacrificially and generously in ways with our time, with our forgiveness, with our kindness, with our prayer, with our service, and with our money, all for the sake of God's purposes. We never actually achieve this fullness of life because we can debate it, we can believe it, we can think about it, we can know it, but we don't realize the blessing of faith and life until we actually live it out, until we do it. See, the Bible is full of instructions on believing, thinking right, on experiencing, feeling right, on doing, of acting right. And so are other religions, though, the, though, though few are as balanced in doing all three of these as Christianity. But being a Christian cannot be encapsulated in these three things. Being religious can but not being a Christian. If we just stay in those other approaches, the thinking, feeling, and doing approaches, we end up being trapped by religion. We start relying on our performance to think right, to feel right, to do right, so that we can reach this place of fullness of life. See, we start pursuing faith in any religion through right thinking and right feeling and right doing. It's, it's our approach to this spiritual wholeness, and it leaves us carrying this heavy burden in life, trying to be disciplined enough, focused enough, good enough, long enough 
to get to this convergence point that we all long for, of being spiritually alive, right, or we're just calling fullness of life, however you want to talk about it today. And bookstores are lined with self-help books that promise if we just do these things, if we just think right, if we just meditate, if we just care for our soul better, if we just have the right habits, then everything will be okay. And they help some, right? But they don't cure the disconnect we feel in our hearts. And they don't remove the evil that we experience in our hearts. See, the more educated, the more skilled, the more controlled we get, the more we realize that we still have this disconnect between what we hope for and what we have. That we still have, no matter how educated and controlled we get, we still have bad, evil thoughts. We still do things we don't want to do. We're driven by motives and drives that we're frankly not proud of. And the more we live, the more we're honest, the more we realize the problem is not behavior or thinking or experience. It's our hearts. You see, these three approaches to religion just aren't sufficient. And sometimes we even approach our Christian faith through these three things and and try to be better at thinking and feeling and doing. And when we do that and something bad happens or something painful happens or something difficult or difficult happens, we begin to ask ourselves questions like, if I just prayed more, if I had been more faithful, if I had done more spiritual duties or more, or more moral duties better, might the situation have been different? And see, we start to struggle with condemnation, trying to say, if I just did it different, it might be different. And we also struggle with obedience, feeling the weight of the responsibility of not being good enough in our obedience. When we struggle, we often, we often put up walls of protection as well around us when we're struggling with those things because we need to feel better about ourselves and our shortcomings. So then we start to talk about our faith like this. We start to say, I give to charity. I'm kind. I'm, I'm, I'm a better person. Then we start comparing ourselves. And, or we may say, I do more good than bad, and I'm basically basically a good person, you know, acknowledging our shortcomings. But as a result, we sell short God's dream for us because He wants us whole. He wants us to live in fullness, not just mostly good, not just mostly whole, not just mostly full. Now, we've been in John for the meaning of Christmas. And let's look at another passage in John that we haven't read much this, this time around. It's a really profound passage, but we hear it so often that we sometimes lose how profound it is. It's John 3, and it starts in verse 16. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Another exclusive statement by Jesus. Jesus is talking here. That whoever believes in him shall not perish. In other words, they shall stop dying inside. This is the solution being talked about of falling short, of never being quite complete, of never being quite fully whole. And it's also talking about death in general. But they will have eternal life, have enduring, lasting, now and forever kind of life. For for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. How many of you now and again feel put off or condemned by God or the Bible or the church, and it makes you feel bad about yourself. It's not, that isn't Jesus. It might be Satan's thoughts accusing you. It might be your own or other people's thoughts accusing you. It might be your own baggage accusing you, but it's not Jesus. It's not God's spirit. Because Jesus says he came 
to save, not to condemn, but to save the world through him. Have you ever had a pet or, a, or, or an animal that was wounded and afraid of being touched because it was afraid you were going to hurt them more, right? So as you're trying to reach out to them, you're trying to care for them, you're, they're afraid and they don't want you to touch you and they're snarling at you, maybe even biting at you. and They're trying to keep you at a distance. They want to make you go away. All the while, you have nothing but healing, caring, good in your heart for that animal. See, that's a picture of God reaching out to us all too often when we get stuck in our own or other people's condemning thoughts towards us. And we live misunderstanding God's intent. But Jesus spells it out here. He says, even if you do not believe in him, even if you know you're offending him in how you live, his intent is not to condemn you. Even if you did dumb things last night, things that you know are not pleasing to God, in fact, they're not even pleasing to you when you think about them after the fact. Jesus has no intention of condemning you for those actions. That isn't how he's approaching you. If you feel that condemnation, then you are the hurt animal snarling, trying to keep God at a distance, misunderstanding his kind intent towards you. Yet even a hurt, defensive, cornered animal has to actually accept the kindness, don't they? And change its perspective before it fully receives the gift because God isn't a bully who overpowers our will. Jesus goes on and says this. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. If you were to go to a Buddhist and ask them, did it have to be Buddha to make your religion stand, or could it have been someone else? They would respond to you saying, well, it could have been anyone. Anyone who could have accomplished that level of enlightenment could have founded the religion. I was listening to a number of Christians who uh, do a lot of dialogue with Muslim clerics all over the world, including some who are affiliated with terrorist organizations, and they, they've asked the same question. Did, you, did it have to be Muhammad who started the Islamic faith? And they said the first response of the Muslim clerics is almost always, Muhammad is God's prophet and none other. I mean, that's kind of the mantra, and, and, and they'll start there. But if you press them, they'll say, well, it, it could have been someone else because Muhammad was just a man. And some other man could theoretically have been used by God in that same way as well. But Jesus is God. He's not just another human being. For Christianity, no one else could have founded the religion. And in addition, Jesus does something else no other religion does, going beyond thinking, feeling, and doing approaches to find fullness of life. He makes experiencing the best of life, this fullness of life, whatever we call it, solely about you and him. It's all about relationship. See, that's what Jesus is saying when he says, whoever believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in him, is what it's saying. You see, acceptance or condemnation is no longer about our actions, but it's about our relationship. Committing to following Jesus is the only decision we need to make in order to receive this fullness of life. It's no longer many thoughts, many experiences, and things you need to do well enough, long enough to find this fullness of life. Why? Because Jesus took 
all the blame. He took all the curse. He took all the hurt, all the consequences for sin, for our lack of perfect strength, our lack of discipline, our lack of character. He took all the pain and all the consequences for our wrong thinking, our wrong experiences and feelings, and our wrongdoing on the cross. And what that means as Christians is we get at the beginning what everyone else in every other religion is striving for as the goal. It's a gift already given. Now, granted, one that we have to become less blind to, that we have to understand and receive more, that we get to walk into more every day. But the fullness of life is given already, and it is a gift nonetheless. And when we realize that, it flips our hearts, doesn't it? It takes away all the pressure we feel about faith and growing in life, and it leaves us with this freedom, with this peace. See, we get the gift of God's fullness from the start. It's not something we work up to. It's not something we long for one day. It's not something off in the distance. It's all given at the beginning. It's new life. He makes us alive. You see, when we live on the front side of this experience of fullness of life through man-made religion, whether we're trying to pursue our Christian faith or something else through that, the weight of that is heavy, isn't it? With discipline and diligence and responsibility to get there. It's all on me because it's our right thinking, our right feeling, our right doing that gets us there. And we miss the real life and the salvation that Jesus intends and what relationship with this God who came as a baby 2,000 years ago is all about. Because Jesus makes entering fullness of life, whatever words we use, Centered, nirvana, I don't care what words you use. Fullness of life is no longer about how good we can be in all these three things of thinking, feeling, and doing, but instead he makes it solely about him and not about our actions. Yet isn't it true that we struggle still with that because we don't fully grasp that, we don't fully realize that? Wendy reminded me a couple weeks ago, about a video we saw a couple years ago that I think in its own fun Christmas way reminds us of what it's like so often when we approach our faith in Jesus through this thinking, feeling, doing, religious aspect. Would you just enjoy the video? Oh, Jesus. Here, open my gift. Oh, good. You're going to love it. 
Awkward, huh? Can you imagine giving Jesus a cross? That's just, that's just, uh, uh, you know, the truth be told, Jesus is the, the epitome of the struggle of giving someone who has everything and trying to find anything you can give to him. And it's just, uh, we try to give God so many gifts with our lives, don't we? We try to make him happy. We try to do things. We try to achieve fullness of life and success for him. And it's so easy for us to fall into the trap of religion and try to earn good graces with him and do the right things to earn this fullness of life. But what was it that Jesus really wanted most? God wants you so much. God wants you so much that he came like one of us as a baby. He grew up to be a man living with us. He made, his, he made this pursuit of fullness of life, uh, whatever we call it, whether it's happiness, whether it's success, whether it's whether it's eternal life, whether it's, you know, my job going well this week that I'm praying for. He made it whatever, this dream goal of life. It's not about solving this thinking, this feeling, this doing first so that we could have that goal. Jesus doesn't start by making bad people good. He doesn't start by making unfocused people centered He doesn't start by making undisciplined people disciplined in practices. He doesn't even start by making numb people attuned to their inner world. Jesus starts by making dead people alive, by making alienated people accepted, by taking insecure people, whether we realize it or not, we are completely secure, by taking guilty people and justifying them, by taking stained people, and making them white as snow. You know, he gives true life, life that lasts and makes us new creations. He draws us near to him. He adopts us as his children. We get to be his kids. He's our father. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us himself. And the Bible says he gives it to us without limit, without limit. He identifies with us completely and is so happy that we identify with him completely. Isn't that amazing? Instead of following him being something that's heavy and burdensome and working towards something, living life becomes rooted in this grateful, joyful response of being released into this more and more experience of this fullness of life that he's already given us at all. And not only released, but he carries us, he says, by his Holy Spirit. He doesn't even give it up to our power. He gives us the power to carry us into that life because we already have what we long for. Now, we just get to learn to realize it more and become less and less blind to it every day. You see, that's 
the best gift ever. That's the gift we celebrate at Christmas. And as this video illustrates, when it comes down to it, what Jesus really wants from us this Christmas is relationship. This season, as difficult as the demands are, as difficult as all the things that are going on are, and the pace of everything, Jesus wants to spend time with us, receiving him, talking to him, us knowing him, and us worshiping him. You know, are we not so often like those people in the video and the way we approach it, working hard to try to please God? And he loves the thoughts and the efforts we put into doing that. He loves that, but it means nothing to him if he doesn't have your love, if he doesn't have you, you personally, gratefully loving him. And this is why we came here today, right? Why we gather together. We need, we need regular times to refocus, to receive. We need to have this intentional refocusing daily and weekly, time with other people together to express our appreciation and gratefulness to him. Maybe today you're here and you're that, you're that frightened, wounded animal who's been trying to hold God off at a distance. There's something's not gone well. There's been disappointment in your life or difficulty in your life or in your relationships. Whatever it is, maybe, maybe you messed up and hurt someone you love or maybe you're the one hurting today. Or maybe you're just overwhelmed and you're scattered because life is just so intense and you're just trying to check off the religious things to be here today and, and get it off. Or whatever it is, right now, just breathe deep, would you? Just... Breathe a prayer of whatever that harriedness is, that, that pain, that disappointment is, out to God. And would you just take a moment to receive him, to worship him, to sit down on that couch next to him and experience him right here. Lord, we ask that you would come. Lord, you, this gift of fullness of life for the most beautiful thing we could ever have. Thank you for that gift. Lord, I pray that during this season you'd help each one of us receive it. I pray that you'd help us just to enjoy the worship that we get to give back to you, the joy we get to give back to you. Lord, because that's our gift to you this season, is us. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.